Good morning, class. How are we today, children? Good. Smiling? Good, that's good. Hey, in our last session, uh, we discovered that the secret of a joyful life is found as we cultivate an attitude of humility in our lives. Humility precedes harmony. Humility precedes uh, unity. And unity always precedes joy. An attitude of humility or mindset that recognizes that others are more important than ourselves always will produce joy in our life. For example, a husband who considers the needs of his wife and his children more important than his own needs, I'll guarantee you, will produce a joyful home. A wife who considers the needs of her husband and her children more important than her own will produce a joyful home. Children who put the needs of their parents before their own needs will help produce a joyful home. Siblings who, who, who put the needs of one another before their own needs will help to produce a joyful home. You know, an employer that considers the needs of his employees before his own will help create a joyful environment to work in. You know, friends that consider the needs of others more important than themselves will help to produce a joyful relationship. A player that considers the needs of his teammates before himself will help to create unity and harmony on a team and produce joy. And if you don't believe that any things are true, then all you have to do is experience the opposite sometimes, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. A friend of mine manages a baseball team, and, and since my children are old enough, Ryan's old enough now that I don't get to manage him, I don't have the privilege of doing that anymore. I can spectate like the rest of the world. And by the way, I was telling some people walking in here that I am undefeated in that role, and uh, find that it's a lot easier to manage and coach from the little chair that I take to the field every week. But uh, he, he was trying to, uh, his season was already over. They had one game left. They had already won their division. They won everything that they could win. And, and it was a time to put everybody else in the game and let kids who had rode the bench for the majority of the year at least play the minimum time of three innings or whatever to get to play and to start and to feel the excitement of seeing their name in the lineup. And, you know, he wanted to do that as a reward to these kids who don't get to play as often as other kids. And so he explained this all to his team and said, Saturday, when you get here, I want you to understand that this is our game plan. This is what we're going to do. You know, is everybody, uh, you know, does everybody understand? Oh, yeah, coach, yeah, we just won the game. We just won the division. Oh, yeah, yeah. Show up on Saturday. He has the lineup up there, and he looks down, and one kid's crying. Why, why are you crying? Well, because I'm not starting. So, but, but I told you Thursday you wouldn't be starting, that you started all year. We're giving somebody else a chance to play. Well, that's not fair. Well, that's not right. And I was we were laughing. I thought maybe he had some kind of a you know, bonus clause in his contract, you know, consecutive starts or something. You know, the kid's 12 years old. Hey, that, that's not right. You know, I should start every game. And it's like, man, you see that and you begin to realize, you know, how true what we're saying is. That an attitude of putting other people ahead of oneself will continue to create and promote an environment of joy and harmony. You know, take church leaders who put the needs of their congregation before their own needs and put their needs of the people before the, the needs to come up with regulations on paper and policies and things of that nature. I'll guarantee you when we consider others more important than ourselves, then you have a joyful environment regardless of the situation. Take a politician that says, I want to put the needs of the people before my own needs. Oh man, I'll tell you what, wouldn't that be unique? It'd be wonderful. You know, maybe we can get back to the days where these are the United States of America. I'll tell you why, because when we consider others more important than ourselves, it creates unity, creates harmony, and harmony always leads to joy. I'll guarantee you this, if you lack joy in an area of your life, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me for a moment to James chapter 3. I am convinced of this beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you lack joy in your home, if you lack joy in your business, if you lack joy on an on a athletic team, if you lack joy in a church, if you lack joy in a nation, I guarantee you, you can trace it back to one thing and one thing alone. And you know what that one thing is? Someone is being selfish. Someone is being selfish. Someone is saying, hey, my needs are the most important thing in the world. Consider the needs of others more important than myself. What are you, crazy? James chapter 3, verse 13, Who among you is wise and has understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. 
This wisdom is not that which comes, it comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. For where jealousy, and there it is, selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every evil thing. Isn't that true? Where someone's being selfish, and there's selfish ambition, man, you're going to have a mess on your hands. Regardless of what area of life that you'll find yourself, it's going to be a mess. In our previous session, we discovered the resources for genuine humility, which makes cultivating this attitude possible. In this session, we're going to observe that Jesus Christ is the incarnation of genuine humility. Listen, listen to me and listen carefully. This is one of the greatest passages on the person of Jesus Christ that you'll ever study in the Bible. Not only will we learn more about how we can become more humble and how we can cultivate a, an attitude of humility in our own life, but what this passage demonstrates to me as I've gone through it and studied and prepared for it, it demonstrates to me the great depth of God's love for people. It'll demonstrate to us exactly the extent that Jesus went through. Would he put himself through the great sacrifice that he made on the part of every one of us. This is an incredible passage of Scripture. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. It's, I mean, it, this is one of those passages that I, I studied, prepared, had it all done probably Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. And I felt like a little kid on a trip with his parents that ask every day, you know, are we there yet? It's like, is, is, is tomorrow sun, Sunday, honey? You know, no, not tomorrow. It's only Wednesday. Slow down, calm down. Oh, no, it's only Thursday. And so, you know, I couldn't wait to get here to share this with you because this is the greatest single passage on the person of Christ that you ever study in the Bible. And that's making quite a statement because obviously there are a lot of passages that are in here. But in Philippians chapter 2, we look at what we're talking about in this attitude, this attitude of cultivating humility in our life when we read this. If therefore there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself, and do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of, the, of others. Before we get into the text that we'll look at, there's a reminder as we go through this, in these, in these four verses, it tells us that if we're to expand joy in our lives, we must have a mental disposition. We have to have a state of mind. We have to be willing to think a certain way. And that way of thinking is we have to be willing to put the needs of others before our own. It, has, it starts in our mind. It's a mindset. It's a mental disposition. In other words, we need to stop being selfish, which we just read in James, is a very natural thing. It is very natural to be selfish. It is very natural to meet your own needs before others. It is very natural to put yourself first. One of the things I've always been fascinated about by business and the thing that we wrestle with on a regular basis is, you know, many companies include their employees in all of their benefit programs because they have to. If you're going to set up a K-501 or if you're going to set up some type of retirement program and you own a business and you've got employees, hey, you have to involve them. It'd be fascinating to see how many people would involve their employees if they didn't have to. See, why? Because it's natural to meet our own needs. It's natural to think about our own future. It's natural for me to worry about my children, their needs, my wife's needs, our family's needs, our future's needs. That's a natural thing. But see, what God is saying is, I've got to be willing to get to the point in my life where I put others, the needs of others, even more important than my own needs. And as natural as that is... You don't have to teach a baby to be selfish. Think about that. Have you ever had a little baby around the house? Who sits down with the baby and says, okay, now this is the way you say, mine! This is the way you say, gimme! This is the way you smack other little kids when they're trying to take your little toy. Nobody has to teach that. Why? It's natural. But it doesn't come from God. It's natural. We need to start putting others first and considering others more important than ourselves. But here's the problem. Ain't nothing natural about it. It's supernatural and it has to come from God. Period. 
How's it possible to be less selfish? How's it possible to become more sensitive to the needs of others? How, how's it possible to put others first? How's it possible to deny ourselves? How are all these things possible? Or are they possible? Some of you are thinking, that is not even possible to do. Well, we'll find out. Because in verses 5 through 11, we see that it is possible. And the way that we find out that it is possible is by looking at the life and examining the life of Jesus Christ. In these verses that we'll look at, Paul is saying, hey, if you don't think it's possible to develop an attitude of humility, if you don't think it's possible to have a mindset that says, hey, I'm considering others more important than yourselves, then let me tell you something. You don't have a slightest idea of what Jesus did for you. And I need to teach you. And I need to tell you. And I need to demonstrate it. And I need to show you. Because I guarantee you this, when you see, there's a person here that's listening to my voice right now, that when you leave here today and you finish studying what you're studying, will ever be able to say again that that's not possible to put others first. When you see what Jesus did, it's going to blow you away. I mean, this is incredible. Because in effect, what Paul is saying is it's saying, hey, you know what? You, you know what I'm trying to get at? You know what I'm trying to tell you? You know what I'm trying to teach you? It, it's like, you want an example, of, for instance, of, of a person that knew how to put the needs of others before himself? Well, then let me share with you the perfect example of unselfishness. Let me share with you the perfect example of a mindset that said, hey, others are more important than me. Let me show you the perfect example of what it meant to, be have, to have a humble mind. Now we're ready to look at what he says in verses 5 through 11 about the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. Have this attitude in yourself, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this passage, these great theological statements, we find that what's called the kenosis or the emptying of Jesus Christ. The passage will demonstrate that what he emptied was not his deity, but what he did was he took seven steps that I want to share with you, seven, seven steps of humiliation, seven steps of humility. And as we look at these humbling steps, you know, I, I wish there was some way, I wish I was creative enough to be able to draw you a picture or some kind of a visual aid to, to help you to see and to understand what a gigantic fall Jesus took on our behalf. How high he was and how low he became. I wish there was some way I could share that with you and I, I'm not creative and artistic enough, but I think that as we go through it, the picture will paint, it will, will become self-evident of a portrait of what it means to be humble and put others first. You know, he says first of all in verse 5, he's saying, have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus. It's important to realize what he's saying is this is a command. This isn't an opinion. This isn't an option. God is saying this. We need to have this same mindset. In verse 2, the word have this attitude is the same thing that talks about being of the same mind. To have the same mental disposition. To think like Jesus thought. To have that mental disposition that says others are more important than me. He's saying this is a command. You're to have this attitude, this mind that Jesus had, and you're to have it in yourself. We're to look at that, and it refers to the fact that, you know, this isn't just an opinion. That which is in Christ Jesus, what he's saying is that, man, we need to recognize that we need to have and develop and cultivate this same mental disposition. But he goes on, and we're going to take a look at seven steps downward, so to speak, and I want to share the first one with you. It's found in verse 6. We read this. Who, although he existed, and who is referring to Jesus... And it says, who Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God 
a thing to be grasped. Step number one, it was when Jesus left heaven's glory. I don't know how else to explain that to you. But the first step of humiliation was when Jesus left heaven. Now, I don't know even how to begin to comprehend this, but we got to realize the fact that, you know what? Jesus was in heaven. Jesus was sitting at the right hand of God the Father in all of his glory, and he was flooded by the presence of angelic hosts and angels who were before him and were praising him for, as, for what he was and who he is, and that is God who though he existed in the form of God, it's interesting and we need to recognize and understand something here, what he's saying in the form of God means that, or existed in the form of God, means that he always existed. What it's referring to is the fact that Jesus always existed throughout all of eternity as God. He was in heaven. He was being praised as God and creator of the universe. And he existed before he ever became a baby in that little town of Bethlehem. He was the pre-existent, eternal God. And if you doubt that or don't understand that, read John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God, and all things that were created were created through him and by him. The, verse, the, the passage goes on and says this, And the Word of God... The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is God. It's one of the strongest statements of the deity of Christ that you'll find in the Bible, who though he existed in the form of God, Jesus is God pre-existing before he ever came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you doubt that, then you need to understand this. Jesus also explained that to some of the people that were around him one day when he said this. Before Abraham existed, he said this, I am. John 8, 58. Now you go, well, what does that mean? And what's so significant about that? Well, it's very simple. When Moses was trying to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, Moses was having second thoughts about what God was telling him to do, and he was a little frightened by it. And he went to God and said, God, I'm going to go to Pharaoh, and I'm going to say, hey, let all these two million free laborers you have go. All right, that's a great idea. Now, you want to tell me who I can tell him sent me with that kind of message. And God this, God said, you tell him, I am sent you. Yahweh God. You tell him, God sent you with that message. See, Jesus said the same thing about himself. Before Abraham existed, I am. They knew what he was saying because the passage tells us that they pick up rocks to kill him. Who are you to claim to be God? I'm God. You may not like it, but I am. Seriously, I am. They didn't like it. But the point of all of it is this. For us to grasp the humility, that, that the mind of Christ, we need to recognize something. We need to recognize that Jesus existed always as God and was worshipped and adored as God that he is God, always was God, always will be God. And he left heaven and subjected himself knowingly to everything that he was going to go through. To all of the pain, to all the degradation, to all the abuse, to being cursed at, spit upon, beaten, whipped, crowned with thorns and hung on a cross. He knew all that ahead of time and he left heaven to do it anyway. Man. Does he know what it means to put others ahead of himself? You know, so many of us have this mine attitude. That's mine. That's mine. That's my promotion. That should have been my job. That should have been my raise. I'm the one with seniority. I'm the one that's been here. I should have that position. I played it last year. And now a new guy comes and now he's in that position. That's mine. That's mine. That's mine. We know what it means to be selfish. But we don't know what it means to put others first. As God, Jesus wasn't worried about leaving his position in heaven and worrying that God... I could just see now. Do you think this conversation took place? Jesus go, okay, I'm going to go down to earth now. Father, um, you know, try to hold my position open for me. I'm going to be gone 33 years. You know, if you want, call it sick leave. Uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. 
but, but I'm coming back. And you know what? And I'm looking, and I see Gabriel. Gabriel's kind of liking this pot. And I see Michael over there, that archangel now. Don't let him take my spot. Oh, we're hanging on for everything, man. We're afraid we're going to lose something. But you know what? Jesus wasn't afraid to lose anything because he was God. And he didn't regard equality with God, what? A thing to be grasped and hung on to. So many of us want to hang on. We want to hang on. You know, let me tell you something. You want joy in your life? Stop trying to hang on. I talk to guys all the time in the NFL trying to hang on. They're some of the most miserable people I ever know. Trying to hang on. And I try to tell them the same thing. You want joy in your life? Then you don't try to hang on. Then you just open your hand. And you say, okay, God. You put it in. If you want to take it out, you can take it out. And besides, I learned this. I try to hang on to stuff. My puny little fingers aren't going to stop God from taking what he wants out of my hand. I know, it's not like this big tug of war is going to take place. You just go like this. Boom, and they're open. <laughs> it's, like, it's there. It'll take it. But I also learned this. When, when, I, when I have an open hand, God can not only take things out that he put in, but he can also put other things in that he wants to. Sometimes we hang on and we're selfish to the exclusion of what God wants for us that's coming in the future. And you know what? We're not willing to let go of this because we don't trust him to give us something better. He said, let go. See, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped and to hung on to tightly. He was willing to leave. And you say, man, you know what? Did he really know what he was getting into? Listen to Hebrews 12, 2. says this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See what he says? Man, think about that. He knew exactly. And it was for the benefit of those of us, his sacrifice was the joy that was set before him. We're back to our theme again in this whole series, and that's joy. You know why he, was, know why he had joy in his life? Because he knew that his sacrifice, as we would receive that, was going to be better for us. There'd be nothing better than receiving the sacrifice he made on our behalf, and he despised the shame, he endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him, and you know whose joy that was? It was ours. He knew what it meant to put others first. You know, it's interesting as we go through this to realize he knew what he was doing. Number two, we also see this back to Philippians chapter 2, says that his second step downward was that he emptied himself, who though existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but look what it says, but he emptied himself. I like that. There's a contrast here. You can hang on tightly or you can let it go. You can be selfish or you can choose joy. You can put yourself first or you can put other people first. It's a choice. There's a contrast there. He had a choice of hanging on to it and saying, no way, I'm not leaving heaven. No way, I'm not going to earth. No way, I'm not sacrificing myself for these people. They don't even love us. They don't even care about us. They could care less about everything. Hey, they're on their own. Or you can let go and put others first, which is what he did. What did he let go of? Oh, controversy has raged throughout all of the centuries over what did Jesus let go of when he left heaven? What does it mean when he emptied himself? Oh, some would say, oh, he emptied his deity. He wasn't really God when he was here on earth. He was just a man. Oh, he was perfect man, but he wasn't God. No, he wasn't. No, no. let me tell you something. The passage explains itself very clearly. Let me ask you this. As you read through the life of Christ, was there any evidence in his life that he wasn't God? Was there ever any evidence in his life at any time that he wasn't God? John the Baptist said, hey, are you the one we're looking for? Should we send for somebody else? Or should we be waiting for somebody else? How do we know that you are who you claim to be? And he said, go tell him this. Hey, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. What was he saying? Hey, have I not raised people from the dead? Have I not caused blind people to see? Have I not caused lame people to walk? Have I not quieted the storm and walked on water and multiplied a little bit of food and fed 20,000 people at a time? Have I not demonstrated to you that I am God? Can I not forgive sins? There wasn't a time in Jesus' life where he didn't demonstrate on a self-chosen, appointed basis when he wanted to reveal that he was truly God. There was no question about the fact that he was God. He demonstrated on a regular basis. But what's interesting to me was he laid aside a lot of the prerogatives. Think about this for a minute. Who showed up when he was born? Shepherds? Three wise men, some angels, 
Why wasn't the whole world there to greet him? Why wasn't Caesar himself there to greet him? There were more people greeting people that come back from winning Super Bowls at the airport than there were that met Jesus that night that he came to this earth. There are more people waiting to greet a World Series victorious team and having a parade, a ticker tape parade in their cities than showed up that night to greet him when he showed up. Could he have made him? He could have made everybody be there at one time. Could he have demanded worship? Absolutely, because he's God. Did he ever claim to be a king? There was only one time that he announced that he was king, and it was when he was riding in Jerusalem on the weekend that they would crucify him. And at that point, people said to him, tell him to stop calling you king. Tell him to stop hailing you as king. Tell him to stop worshiping you as king. And he said, no way, because if I told them to shut up, even the rocks themselves would shout praise and hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He could have had everybody show up, but he didn't. Because that wasn't what he wanted to do. That wasn't his plan. That wasn't his choice. It was self-limitations. And you say, what did he empty himself of? I'll tell you right there. Read the passage. This isn't that difficult. He emptied himself. That's it. Say, so what do you mean? He emptied himself. He considered others more important than himself. And he emptied himself. And he put others first. Doesn't get any simpler than that. He put others first. What an incredible step. What an interesting thing. You know, I can't even think of, you know, every illustration I try to think of was so pathetic and puny in contrast. I was thinking that, you know, sometimes my partner and I, we go out and we work on jobs. And we work side by side. It'd be like the owner of a business subjecting himself to uh, employees in a factory and they didn't know he was the owner. And he would go down there and work on the assembly line and he'd be with them and he'd be amongst them and, and he'd be doing the same chores and the same tasks. And they'd look at him and say, hey, you're the new man. Hey, you need to go and run out and get us something to eat for lunch. You need to go and you stay afterwards and you sweep up and you're the one that's going to do all these things. And, and, the, and these people that he worked side by side with would never know for a moment that he was the owner of the business. And he subjected himself to that type of treatment. See, you know, as pathetic as illustration that it, as that is, you know what? That's what it takes for me to understand and recognize that that's what Jesus did for me. He subjected himself to all the things around him that you and I have to go through. And he did it voluntarily. And he left this big cushiony office, if you want to look at it that way, and he walked out through the door and he changed his clothes and he came into a factory and he put on workers' grubs and he worked side by side with people on the assembly line and they didn't have a clue who he was. Could he have walked out there and marched out there and said, hey, the owner's here! Send the entourage beforehand to make sure everybody knew it. Absolutely he could have done it. But he didn't do that. Why? So that we can learn and understand what it means to have a humble mind. To put others more important than ourselves. That's what he did. You know, I look around, I've worked in businesses and it cracks me up. I've worked in companies where if the secretary's in the bathroom or whatever and the phone is ringing, you'll have 50 people looking at each other like, who's going to answer the phone when it rings? Have you ever been there? I've had places where I've answered the phone. People go, oh, what are you doing answering the phone? It rang. <laughs> oh, but gee, you answer the phone. Yeah, it rang. And they look like, oh, that's so beneath you to answer the phone. It was driving me nuts. You notice I waited till the 32nd ring. You know, some of us are like that. It's like, oh, I'm not going to do that. That's not my job. I don't answer phones. Where is she? Hurry up in there. Him running out, you know, big old string of toilet paper on a shoe. <laughs> Hello, huh? I'm sorry, you got the wrong number. <laughs> you know, sometimes we're like that. We need to understand something. It's amazing to me. What did Jesus do? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. You say, well, how do you know he just emptied himself and he emptied his glory? Don't forget either. He took Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration and said, hey, watch this and get put on an electrical light show that Disney never came close to. The electrical light parade, he said, watch this. And what did they do? They dropped on the ground. They built an altar. They worshipped him. They knew who he was. He could have done it anytime he wanted. You know, in all these pictures of Jesus walking around with a halo over his head. What in the world? Now, these are people that paint pictures and never read the Bible. That's the only way I can think of it. They never read the Bible. And you say, why is that? Because Jesus didn't have a halo over his head. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because when Jesus was arrested in the garden, Judas said, I'll go over and kiss the guy because nobody even knows who he is. 
Oh. Oh. Little clues here, huh? And you go, well, how do you know it was just the glory that he gave up? Because in John 17, before Jesus was go, to go to his death, he prayed this, Father, restore to me the glory that was mine and is yours before that foundation of the world. Just give it back. It's time for me to get it back. Number three, look at the third step, was he took the form of a bondservant. I guess we kind of illustrated that when, whenever we talked about going out into a factory and working side by side with the workers. Jesus took the form of a bondservant. He came into this world not as a king, not as a prince, not as royalty, not as someone elite. He took the form of a bondservant. He was a carpenter. And if you had had a problem with your door and the hinges squeaked or something was wrong, with it, and you went to his carpentry shop and you said, hey, you know, can you come and fix my door? Guess what he would have done? I'll be right there. He wouldn't have said, hey, do you know who you're talking to? I don't even have to go there to fix it. But he picked up his toolbox and he went to the house. He was found in the form of a bond servant. He was a servant. Number four says he was made in the likeness of men. Now, I don't know what it's going to take here for us to understand. He left heaven. He limited himself, self-limitations, on his demonstration that he is God. He took the form of a bond servant. And now... If that's not bad enough, it says he was made in the likeness of a man. Now, you may not have a problem being a man or a woman, and I may not have a problem with it, because I don't know any better. That's always what I've been. You follow me here? But let's just take for a second. Now, how many of you ever had ants in your house? Ants in your house. They're marching up and down, man. They're like looking for stuff. You know, it's like I, you get up in the morning, and there's an ant highway somewhere. And they're just busy. They're, they're, they're whistling the theme from uh, the bridge over uh, the River Kwai. You know, that's it. They're, they're, you know, they're just hauling away loaves of bread and tables and stuff. And there's a big old ant farm, you know, just a trail going up and down your house. You know, if you've ever been there and you know what that's like. Now, see, the thing is, I don't hate ants. My wife doesn't really hate ants. She just doesn't like them in the house. I don't like them in the house either. So what do we do? We annihilate them. You know, if we can, we kill them. We just annihilate them, obliterate them, get rid of them all. See, now, if, if we could communicate with ants, what I'd like to do is cut them a deal. Say, you don't bother us, we won't bother you. And I'll tell you what we'll do. You like sweet and low? You like sugar? You want a brownie? What is it that you want? And we'll cut a deal, we'll negotiate, and say, well, we'd like a brownie. Oh, sweet and low, what's that? Something new. Yeah, it's the pink packets. Oh, yeah, we've seen those before. It's hard to get into. So we, we negotiate this little deal, and I'll say, I'll tell you what we'll do. Right out here in our backyard, we're going to go ahead and lay out some sweet and low. We'll lay out a brownie, we'll lay out maybe, you want a chocolate chip cookie? We'll throw one of those in to kind of sweeten the deal for you. Now, this, if, in water, we'll give you some water. Now, if you just stay out there, then we won't kill you. Now, the problem is to communicate with an ant, I'd probably have to become an ant so we can cut this deal. Now, for me to become an ant would mean that I would have to take on the form of an ant, and then some of you would run around looking for me and kill me. <laughs> now, I'm a little bit too big right now to squash, but man, as an ant, you could get me real quick. So, so what I'm trying to get across is, is that it doesn't seem like a big deal for you and me to be a man or a woman, because we are. But to leave this position and become an ant and crawl around and subject myself to what ants have to go through, I don't know. I don't know if I'm willing to make that type of sacrifice for ants. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but we're kind of puny in comparison to God. I don't know if you've ever thought about God taking on the form or being made in the appearance of a man as being a humbling thing, but I sure do. He humbled himself in verse 8. And being found in the appearance of a man, here we see it again, he humbled himself. I, I, now, I've been humbled. You've been humbled. We've had people humble us. You know, I like what Charles we John Wesley said. He was walking across a bridge one time. It's a great story. He's walking across a, a bridge and only one person could fit on the bridge. And as he was about to walk across the bridge, across the other side came another very liberal preacher of his day, and John Wesley was a preacher. And the guy looked over and he got halfway across and said, Move aside, I never step aside for a fool. John Wesley looked at him for a second, backed up and said, You know what, but I always do. 
I like that, you know. I like that about John Wesley. I thought that was pretty good. It's like, all right, but I always do. You know, and the point is we've been humbled by others and we've had humiliating things happen to us, but he did it voluntarily. Let me give you an illustration to help you understand it. One of the best illustrations I've ever seen. I'm watching Funniest Home Videos. And they got this, they, they had these two little Chinese children. There was a little boy and a little girl. And there was, there was two steps, and it's hard to, to picture it, but let's just say that this step, well, oh, here, here's two steps. Two steps. Here's one step here, and here's the other step was here. And there was this little chasm in between. And so they were trying to reach, and they were too small, and they couldn't reach. The other one tried to reach, couldn't reach. And, and they couldn't, couldn't get there. The little boy does this. Does this, lays down, the little girl walks across his back. Then he just kind of scooches himself up like this, and he gets to the other side, and he walks away. Was that the most incredible thing? Not really dressed for this, but was that, the, I mean, is that the most incredible demonstration of self-humiliation that you've ever seen? To lay down and, and bridge that gap so that someone else could walk across your back to get to the other side. Wow. I don't know if you recognize this or not, but there is a huge gap between man and God. And that gap is called sin. And that gap has separated man since the first day that man chose to rebel against God. I want you to see this because this is awesome. What Jesus did was just like what that little Chinese boy did for that girl. He laid across that gap and he said, if anybody wants to come to the other side, if anyone wants to come to my Father, if anyone wants forgiveness of sin, if anyone wants to come to heaven, then you're going to have to walk across my back to get there. You can't jump there, folks. You can't catapult there. You can't buy your way across. There's no toll bridge to pay. Jesus paid it all. And it's a matter of us understanding that and saying, I accept that. I believe that. I'm going to walk across your back. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come unto the Father but through me. See, he humbled himself. Self-humiliation. The sixth thing that he did, it says he became obedient to the point of death. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not in a big hurry to die. Really not. Whenever it's time to go, it's time to go, and I believe that there's an appointed day for that, and God's got that all planned out, but I am not in a big hurry, and even on my worst day, I don't really feel like going that day. But I want you to understand something. Jesus left the glory of heaven, came straight to earth, humiliating himself in the, in, in the appearance of a man, and his life was a sprint from that stable that he was born in to the cross that he would die on. And then nothing was going to get in his way. He became obedient to the point of death. He came to die. Some people say when they go to funerals, oh, doesn't he or she look natural? What a stupid thing to say. You know, I, I, I just bite my tongue sometimes. I hear that, oh, look how natural he looks. And I'm thinking, this is the kind of stuff I think. Well, if he looks natural like that, then you can better believe he was never the life of any party. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, if that looks natural, he was never the life of the party. Death is not natural. God did not create man to die. We were never to die. Sin is what causes death. And because of sin, death entered into the world. Because Adam and Eve sinned before God through one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered the world. And because of sin, it, it caused death. We die because we're sinners. It's an evidence of the fact that we're separated from God and we need forgiveness of our sin. We die, and it's not a natural thing. It's unnatural. It was never God's intention to die. But just as through one man sin entered the world, through another man, the man Jesus Christ, the God-man, all God, all man, through him we get eternal life. Through one man sin, through one man life. And he died, and listen to this, he died on the cross, number seven. Some of us don't even have a clue because it's not a cultural understanding, but you know what? We have little earrings that have crosses on. We have necklaces with little silver crosses on. We got, you know, it's all cutesy little stuff and it's all pretty and it's precious and all that kind of stuff. But let me tell you something about the cross. It was the most despicable form of death in that culture in that day. 
It, it was reserved for the lowest life scum of the earth. There was nothing precious or cute about dying on a cross. It was the most brutal form of death that the Romans could, to, to, could, to, could enact on another human being. It would be like putting a big old gas chamber around your neck. It would be like putting an electric chair hanging from your ear. There's nothing pretty or precious about it or a lethal injection, a hypodermic hanging from your ear. See, the cross was never something that was pretty. We need to understand he subjected himself to that. In these seven steps of descent, we learn much about humility. The mindset, the mental disposition of putting others first. And let me tell you something, it's no wonder so many of us are miserable. You want to know why so many of us are miserable and we don't have any joy in our life? Because we don't have a clue what it means to put others before ourselves. And let me tell you something, when you live to please yourself, you will be the most miserable person on the face of the earth because you will never be pleased enough. It's elusive. You can't have it. And what we're learning from Jesus is, hey, you know what? Joy is directly proportional to our willingness to put others first. You say, well, how do we know that? Let's close with this. Listen to these statements. He was humbled, and now God will exalt him. Therefore, why? Because of what he just did. Everything he put himself through. Everything he subjected himself through. Everything that he did on our behalf. You know what God said? Because you subjected yourself to that, therefore, God highly exalted him. God exalted him and lifted up Jesus above everybody else, above everything else, above all of the creation, that Jesus is exalted by God the Father. When Jesus returned to heaven, there was an, ex an exaltation party that you couldn't imagine. The conquering hero has returned and he was exalted for what he did. He was welcomed back to heaven and embraced by God the Father and he said, hey, you know what? It was this God is saying this, I liked your attitude. I liked what you did and as a result, I'm going to reward you. That's easy to understand. We see that in even our own simplistic ways. We look at an employee and says, I like your attitude. I like what you did. I like how you're working. We want to reward you. We do it with our children. We do it with one another. We see it all the time. What God is saying is, that, hey, you know what? I did it with Jesus. I liked his attitude, his mindset, that he put others more important than himself, and as a result, I'm going to raise him up and exalt him above everybody in this whole world. Therefore, he says this, God highly exalted him. Number two, he bestowed a name on him. He gave him a name that was different than any other name. He gave him the name of Jesus, and the name is Jesus Christ Lord, period. That's his name. That's who he is. And he gave him a name above every other name. And you don't think so? Let me tell you something. You mention the name of Jesus and you're going to get a reaction from people. I see this all the time. The Oscars, the Emmys, the Grammys, athletic awards, contests, things of that nature. Hey, I just want to thank God. Oh, that's so nice. He's thanking God. Very non-offensive. That's fine because we all have our own interpretation of God. But the moment someone says, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for what he's done in my life. We don't want to hear that. Go see the movie Twister. I hear Jesus' name all the time. You'd think that Steven Spielberg knew Jesus. And I'll tell you this, I don't think he knew him as God intended him to be known. Jesus Christ this. Jesus H. Christ. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let me tell you something. If you take the name of Jesus Christ, his name in vain, you don't have a concept or a clue of what you're talking about. You don't hear people running around when they hit themselves with a hammer yelling, Oh, Buddha! Stab my toe. Oh, Confucius. <laughs> wow, see, Mohammed. You don't hear that. Why don't you hear that? Because there's something about Jesus that's different than anybody else on the face of the earth throughout human history. Jesus. There's something about his name. You know why? Because it's Jesus Christ Lord. Period. Now, I'll tell you what. We need to get a grasp of that because he says, and he shall be called Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. Folks, there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. There's no other authority under heaven by which man can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. That's as simple as it gets. And because he humbled himself, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus... Let me tell you something. You know what's going to happen? At the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow of those who wear. Number one are in heaven. All the angels and everybody who's died and gone on before us of those of us who are still uh, here on earth and those who are under the earth. 
at the name of Jesus. Let me, can, I, can I be as blunt as I can? He says, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Can I be kind of blunt here for a second? As if I haven't been yet. But I want you to understand something here. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. How many? Every one. Of those who are in heaven, of those who are on earth, and of those who are under the earth. And every tongue will one day confess or agree with God that Jesus is who he claimed to be. God in human flesh who died for our sins. And you've got a choice and I've got a choice. It's like the cheese ball commercial about Fram oil filters. You either pay me now or you're going to pay me later. I don't know how to make this any clearer to you folks than this. Every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ Lord. Now, if you do it now, while you still have a chance, while you still have hope, then you become a child of God to those who believe in His name. If you reject Him and you turn your back on Him and you rebel against Him and you think there's some way you can jump from that table to the other table without going through Him, then let me tell you this. You're still going to one day bow you're still one day going to agree with God that He is Lord, but it's going to be too late for you. And you're going to take your place in the place that's called the lake of fire, where there's going to be weeping, there's going to be gnashing of teeth, and you're going to be separated, God, from all eternity. And wonderful thing about God's love is He gives you the opportunity in me to do that while we still have a chance. He said, today is the day of the Lord, that those who seek Him today will not be disappointed. We need to understand that, folks. This is serious stuff. And I think what helps me to understand it is this. I now know why God exalted Jesus above every, every name. I know why he highly exalted him. I know why he gave him a name that's above every name. I know why every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. And you know why I know that'll happen? Because he did everything that we talked about up to that point. He considered others as more important than himself. He left the glory of heaven. He subjected himself to being a man and coming in appearance of a man. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He surrendered and limited himself for us and put us first. And as a result, he deserves all the glory and the honor and the praise for all eternity to come. And you're either going to accept that now or you're going to accept it later, but too late later. For those of us who have never put our faith and trust in Christ, do it today. For those of us who have and believe everything that has been said to this point and say amen in your heart and your God's spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. To you I say this, to increase our joy we must cultivate an attitude of humility. And you say, well Chuck, how do I do it? I'll tell you how you do it. You keep reflecting on and you keep studying the life of Jesus Christ. And when you're put in a position to have them make a choice, you ask yourself this question. What would Jesus do right now? Where did Jesus hold back when it came to the needs of others? Does anybody see anywhere where he could have done anything more? You see, to develop and cultivate an attitude of humility, we've got to reflect and have this attitude that was in Christ, also in ourselves. We need to recognize that and understand it. To become great in God's kingdom, we must be servants to all. To become first, we must become last. To become exalted, we must humble ourselves. It says, God is opposed to the proud, but he exalts the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the proper time. You see what God is doing here? It's a paradox. It doesn't make any sense. But Jesus did it all, and all we have to do is believe it and accept it. In closing, James and John went to Jesus one day and said, Hey, you know what, Lord? We're thinking you're going to come in your kingdom. You're going to establish his kingdom, and we want to be part of it. And the way we figured it is, one of us wants to sit on your right, and the other wants to sit on your left. And we figure if we ask you first before some of these other guys ask you that we got an inside shot. So they came to him and asked him. And uh, the rest of the ten got indignant and angry because they, you know, I think beat him to the punch. And Jesus looked at him and said, man, you know what? You guys don't even have a clue what you're asking for. And he went on and explained to him. He said, you know what? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you're going to have to be a servant to all. And I want to close with what, what one man writes that I think sums it all up for every one of us that want to cultivate an attitude of humility, that want to find the secret of a joyful life. This man writes this, You know, I'm a lot like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me. 
how they can further my program and feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me some strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really, you know what, it's for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors. Your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want whenever I want it. I'm a lot like James and John. Change me, Lord. Make me a man who asks of you and of others, what can I do for you? Humility starts in the mind. And it starts with a simple prayer of three words. Change me, Lord. Change me, Lord. Humility is the secret of a joyful life. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this passage of Scripture that is just absolutely overwhelming. We can't even begin to imagine in our simple minds what a, what a sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. That we, when we see it and we recognize it and we hear it, when we understand it, we realize now, maybe more clearly than ever, it's no wonder that that's your whole program. What more could we ever do to add to what Jesus did? What more could he ever do to add what he did? I guess that's why when he was on the cross, he cried the words, it is finished. It's all done. And God, now it's up to us as individuals to decide whether we want to believe and accept that or not. There are those here today, God, that have never made that decision in their life, and they need to do that and get that right with you. And I just pray that they'd pray a simple prayer of, God, forgive me. I want to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. I want to be forgiven of my sins, and I believe that he is the only way to get to the Father. God, and I thank you for what he's done for me. And I believe because I believe that, that you say I become a child of God to those who believe in his name. That if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature and all things pass away and all things become new. And God, that's the relationship I want to have with you. And God, for the rest of us who have made that decision at some point in life, we need to recognize, we need to cultivate and develop an attitude of humility. We need to study the life of Christ and ask the question of, what would Jesus do in this situation? And as that man wrote, may we all pray, change me, Lord. Make me into the humble man or woman that you want me to be. And I trust you that at one time in your own way and at your own timing that you will exalt us in the proper time just as you did our Lord and Savior. And we just thank you and praise you in his wonderful name. Amen.